Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. 1 Peter, chapter 2. We are continuing this morning looking at verses 13 to 17, and uh, we are in part two of what is going to be part three parts of looking at the relationship between uh, the Christian and the state. So our text this morning again is from 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, we'll begin by reading uh, together. 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning at verse 13 down to verse 17. And we read here the Apostle Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, your word not only is the means that you use to raise us up from the dead to new life, the living and abiding word is not only the the seed that is planted that produces the fruit of salvation, but Your Word instructs us in how we are to live as we await the coming of Christ again in the fullness of His kingdom. And as we see here in First Peter, it instructs us on how we are to conduct ourselves among the Gentiles, particularly in relation to governing authorities. It is not silent on this matter. You have expectations of your people as we are your ambassadors to this world. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning you would continue to instruct us from your word, that you would Show us what is your will for us as we think about even more how we are to relate to the governing authorities who are over us. So I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week as we began considering what this text of Scripture teaches us about the relationship between the Christian and the state, we, we focused our attention primarily on verse 12, which as we saw provides a kind of general principle for basically what is to follow from verse 13 into the first verses of, of chapter 3. This is the, the general idea, the general principle that uh, that shapes the instructions that Paul is is going to give. Uh, excuse me, Peter. And as we saw, Peter here in verse twelve wants Christians to uh, conduct themselves uh, among the Gentiles, among unbelievers. He says in an honorable manner. And we saw last week that this honorable manner, this honorable conduct, is not itself defined in any way by unbelievers. In other words, Peter is not primarily concerned with the judgment of unbelievers and and what they think about 
Christians. He, he takes it as a given that unbelievers will likely think and speak of Christians as evildoers. That's going to happen. And so this honorable conduct is conduct that is, of course, defined ultimately by God. Defined ultimately by His Word in Holy Scripture and the Gospel of Christ. It is conduct that in the eyes of God involves doing good deeds. Even though, again as we saw, in the eyes of the world, those very same good deeds may be spoken of as evil deeds. We are to nevertheless continue in them as obedient servants of God. And moreover, we saw that there is an evangelistic purpose to this good conduct. It is to serve the purpose of adorning the Gospel. It's, it's to have our, our actions, our lives are to have a kind of disarming effect on the unbelieving heart so that even if they slanderously accuse Christians of being evil, their conscience will bear witness to that slanderous charge. And so that ultimately, when God uses the means of the lives and witness of Christians to save unbelievers, the very people who used to speak negatively about God, the very people who used to speak negatively about His people, will now glorify God because of those very same Christians who they used to hate and speak evil of. Well, this morning we come to the section now where Peter is going to begin applying the general principle of verse 12 to different spheres of the Christian life, particularly with respect to the various relationships that we have in our lives. And the relationship that we're considering again today is, of course, the relationship of the Christian to the state. As I said last week, the Gospel of Christ and the Word of God has political ramifications. There is no sort of Thomas Jefferson dividing wall between the church and the state in the Bible, in Scripture. We do not treat the state as if it is a kind of semi-divine power which operates in its own sphere and which cannot be touched or in any way influenced by the Word of God. It is not some holy ark which must be covered and which you cannot look at lest you die. We do not consider the state as its own sovereign sphere to which the Christian must never speak in any authoritative manner and should just allow it to erect its own pillars of justice apart from any influence of the Word of God. That, that is not how we view the state and particularly our relationship and our speaking and acting to it. But neither, on the other hand, do we treat our own lives as an absolutely autonomous and sovereign life of which the state itself has no authority over. The state has proper authority even over our lives. The state never has any legitimate authority to reject what is good and righteous according to the Word of God and the light of conscience. And the reason primarily is because the rule of God through the Word of God is the only true and absolute sovereign. And by virtue of this position, God Himself and God alone sits in judgment over all earthly 
powers. So again, when the state takes upon itself an authority to execute unrighteous laws, it loses its legitimate authority in the eyes of God. Which is the very reason why for centuries, Christians have rightly and boldly called ruling authorities to account when they are doing things that are evil. They have borne over the years a prophetic witness against the powers of the state whenever it has gone awry. When it is sanctioning the unjust murder of the unborn. When it is sanctioning the slaughter of whole people groups based on their race or based on their ethnicity or based on their religion. Christians have called the authorities of the state to repent because they have recognized that the state itself is ultimately accountable to God. Indeed, that is, as we saw last week, the very reason why we see time and time again Christians even in the Bible refusing to submit to some of the decrees of the state because those decrees are evil. And that at times brings consequences. We see, in fact, in the the life of John the Baptist himself when he's calling Herod to repent of his own sexual immorality because it is not lawful according to the Word of God. When he's bearing witness to the authorities that be, he ends up being killed beheaded as a consequence. And we as Christians have to be prepared for the consequences that may come for bearing that prophetic witness. Now, we will consider this particular truth in more detail next week when we look at the issue of when it is right for the Christian to oppose the state. But I want to begin this morning with this fundamental truth that the rule of God through the Word of God stands in authority over everything. And I want to begin there because there is a danger that Christians have fallen into over the years where they have concluded based on this very truth That the Christian, therefore, has no obligation to submit to earthly powers at all. Because we serve God. We serve the King. And we, therefore, do not have to serve earthly powers. Some, for example, have wrongly deduced from the fact that we are citizens of heaven that we are therefore under no obligation to the state. They have embraced what some theologians have called an overrealized eschatology, living now as if the fullness of the kingdom of Christ has already arrived. But this particular conclusion is a conclusion that is, of course, flatly denied by the text that we are looking at this morning. I want you to notice with me again what Peter says in verse 13. Look with me again at verse 13. He says there, be subject. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by Him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The good conduct that we are called to display in relationship to the state here is one of submission or subjection. That is to say that we are to be a people who recognize the state's legitimate authority over us 
And we do not consider its laws simply because they are the laws of men as unworthy of our obedience. We do not consider those who occupy positions of authority as unworthy of our obedience simply because they are men. Mere men. Neither the truth that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven, nor the truth that God is King of kings and Lord of lords, nor the truth that it is God alone who is sovereign over all things. None of this in any way implies that governments and rulers do not have any legitimate authority over us. It is God Himself who instituted human government. And in the very beginning of creation, He commanded man to exercise dominion over the earth. That is organized rule. That is subduing through organized structural means the earth. It is God Himself who has given authority to man in the form of government to bear the authority of the sword. When in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God said there, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God made them. Now that, that is not a text that is in any way referring to some kind of vigilante justice or personal vengeance. When God gives man authority to execute, in essence, the death penalty in response to murder, that comes through the authority of the governing powers. That is, the state. And of course we see that played out throughout the rest of Scripture, even in the nation of Israel. The state is to be recognized by the Christian as a legitimate authority. And the general disposition of the Christian towards the state is one of submission and obedience to its laws. Now, over the years, there have been various commentators and theologians and pastors who have argued that the command here to be subject here does not necessarily include the idea of obedience in it. Even one of my, my favorite preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones, made a somewhat of a muddled argument, but a very similar argument in this uh, regard. For example, he argued that submission doesn't mean obedience because in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul there tells Christians to submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. And of course, if the term uh, submit has the idea of obedience in it, th this would really make no sense. Christians can't obey one another at the same time. There has to be a hierarchy of authority for the notion of obedience to actually be carried out. And so, Lloyd-Jones made the point that this here does not necessarily imply obedience. Though again, to be fair to him, he was stressing absolute again, it was a little muddled. The problem more with this particular argument is that the grammar and the structure of Ephesians 5 itself indicates what Paul means when he says that we are to submit one to another. As the text goes on, he gives examples. He applies that very same exhortation to multiple relationships among Christians within the church. He commands, for example, wives in verse 22. 
to submit to their own husbands. He commands children in chapter 6, verse 1, to obey their parents in the Lord. And then he commands slaves in chapter 6, verse 5, to obey their earthly masters. And so the context of verse 21 explains what he means when he says that we are to submit one to another. And in every single one of those examples, the idea of obedience is present and in fact it is explicitly stated when it comes to the children and to the slaves. He uses the term synonymously with submit. He uses the term obey. And here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, it is absolutely the case that our submission to every human institution involves obedience. The fact that this obedience is not absolute, and, and it is not absolute, does not imply that there is no idea of obedience here at all. Throughout the New Testament, to submit is a term that is virtually synonymous with obedience. And so, if Caesar commands us to pay taxes, we pay taxes. We may not like paying taxes. We may seek to use whatever legal recourse is at our disposal to change the tax code. But we pay our taxes. This is the, the right position for Caesar to occupy, and he has the authority to do this very thing. The point is that our general disposition towards the government is one of submission, where we recognize its proper authority over us and we obey it. One of the reasons why we do this, as Peter goes on to explain, is that government exists for the good and proper ordering of society. We are not anarchists. Christians are not in any way close to anarchists. In fact, the, the philosophy right, behind anarchy is only just incorrect as a philosophy, but it is completely antithetical to Scripture itself. Notice with me again what Peter says at the end of verse 13 into verse 14. Peter says to Christians that they are to be subject to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, that is sent by the emperor. And then notice they are sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The proper role of the government is to bear the sword and to use it to establish a righteous order where evil is punished and that which is good is rewarded and praised and celebrated. I think it's clear as well here that Peter does not have in mind a government, or at least he's not speaking to the issue of government that has imploded or become completely corrupt and which, as a result, is committing atrocities. That's not what he's describing here. Sometimes people will, will bring up the fact that the, the Roman emperor Nero who was literally a man who was insane, at one time, as the, the Caesar of Rome, persecuted and burned Christians alive. And then they'll point to a text like this and they'll, they'll argue that, that Peter here is calling for a kind of radical, absolute submission to the emperor, even in the face of him burning Christians and these kinds of other various atrocities. At the time when Peter wrote this letter, those particular persecutions had not yet even occurred. 
in fact, throughout 1 Peter, there's, there's no indication that these particular Christians are suffering from any state-sanctioned persecutions. All the indications are is that this is social ostracism that they are at present facing. And so that particular argument is irrelevant when it comes to the limits of the Christian's obedience. The main point here is that what Peter is speaking about clearly is a properly functioning government. A government whose role is to punish evil and to praise what is good. And he says that under that environment especially, and in that ordered society, Christians are to recognize that governing authority and they are to submit to it. They are to obey it and follow its laws. That doesn't mean on the other end of the spectrum that when a government becomes corrupt and we find it punishing good and praising what is evil, that we can then violently rebel and form an armed revolution. That is an opposite error. There are various principles that should guide our response to wicked rulers, and there are various responses that we can take. And we'll look at some of those in more detail next week. I just want you to notice here that Peter is speaking about rulers properly carrying out their God-ordained duty to punish evil and to praise what is good. And that our obligation to these rulers, to these structures, to these institutions is to obey them and to submit to them and to honor them. Now then Peter goes on in verse 15 to give two additional reasons why. Why is this submission to governing authorities necessary? First, you can notice with me there in verse 15, he says, for this is the will of God. It is the will of God that you submit yourself to the proper authority of the state. It is the will of God that you be a good, law-abiding citizen. Sometimes Christians will, will wonder, like, what is the will of God for my life? They ask. I'm trying to find the will of God. They, they tend to, at times, search in all of the wrong places. They, they search everywhere except for the Word of God. They, they search in their feelings and their desires for uh, the will of God. They, they interpret their dreams. They, they look for signs. They, they go looking everywhere except for the Word of God. Well, here, friends, we, we have a, a very clear text that tells us exactly what the will of God is for your life. And His will, stated explicitly, is that you be submissive to every human institution. That you are not a lawbreaker and that you are not some zealot, some violent revolutionary. So one reason why we submit is, of course, because very simply, God says so. God, our King, has commanded us. But the second reason here has to do with what this submission's intended purpose is. The submission has a specific aim. Verse 15 again says, for this is the will of God. And then the ESV really doesn't bring this out much, but this next clause that follows is a purpose clause. And so we would read this, this Submission to the state is the will of God so that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's Peter's immediate purpose. But what does this mean? What is he talking about here? 
but put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Who is needing to be silenced and why? I think here, friends, it's, it's important for us to remember the context into which Peter is writing. Christians, particularly the ones who he's writing to, are living under the Roman Empire. And of course, in the Roman Empire, you had a supreme leader. The, the highest authority was Caesar. But not only was Caesar the highest authority, he was also considered as and treated as a god. He, he was one to be worshipped. You didn't just pay your taxes and then that was it. What was owed to Caesar was the worship of Roman citizens. Now, for Christians, of course, that is a big problem. We do not worship mere men. We do not worship other false gods. Caesar may have been the highest authority in the empire at the time, but as we see here even in this text, he is still only the highest authority in what Peter calls a human institution, or literally a human creation, which is to say that Caesar's authority is not a greater authority than the authority of God. In fact, when Peter tells Christians to submit to the emperor as supreme, it is not because Caesar's supremacy is an ultimate supremacy. The one who is ultimately supreme is the Lord, which is why he says, be subject for the Lord's sake. He is your supreme authority. And he is the one who is owed worship. And so Christians, by virtue of proclaiming in the Gospel of Christ that Jesus is Lord, they were at the same time simultaneously implying that Caesar is not Lord. Caesar is not the King of Kings. And along with this, of course, they, they could not recognize Caesar as a God, and they could not and they would not offer sacrifices to Him as unto a God. Add to this the fact that Christians, especially early on in the church's history, were treated throughout the empire as just another sect of Judaism, and the Jews were notorious for constantly revolting violently against the Romans, Christians could often be charged as just being a kind of revolutionary sect that didn't recognize or submit to the authority of Rome. And that, of course, simply wasn't the case. It was an accusation against them that was unfounded. And so Peter exhorts these Christians to be submissive to these various governing authorities so that the false charges they were being slandered with what he calls the ignorance of foolish people would be silence. Now again, we, we considered this matter last week, but it's worth reminding ourselves that it is inevitable that unbelievers are going to misunderstand and are going to slander Christians for the things that we do and the things that we believe. But what Peter intends for us is that the charges and the accusations that are brought against us amount to nothing more than simple slander. In a very real sense, we are to be able to stand with Jesus when He Himself came under false accusations, and we are to be able to say to the world when it brings those accusations against us, who can convict me of sin? We should be able to have the boldness to say to the world that your charges are unsubstantiated. And for Christians in Peter's day, when they refused to worship Caesar, 
It wasn't because they didn't acknowledge his authority or because they wanted to overthrow the whole society. It was because Caesar was not a god and because it was better for the souls of the people in society to see through the lives of these Christians that there is a God who is sovereign over Caesar. Their, their non-compliance, their disobedience was for the good of society. It was to bear a positive testimony that the world is worshiping a false god which will send them to hell. And yet that there is one to whom they must bow. And His name is Jesus. That's an evangelistic thrust to these actions. A bear witness to the world. And similarly, friends, when our own government takes upon itself an authority that does not belong to it, or when it sanctions wickedness through the force of law, we must oppose it. And in so doing, we may be accused of being a religious zealots. We may be accused of just wanting to erect a theocracy. But those charges should amount to nothing more than slander by the evidence of our regular, consistent submission to all governing authorities. We must be able to say with absolute confidence that we are resisting this particular decree because it is running up against the Word of God and it is God alone who has supreme authority. Now, what I think is also interesting and worth pointing out in this passage is what Peter goes on to say in verse 16. The ESV begins here by saying, live as people who are free. But it's interesting, in the original, that, that verb there, that word, live, is not actually there. There's actually no verb in that verse. It's the continuation of one long sentence from verse 13. And, and the action here has to be supplied from the context. And the context, and many commentators have recognized that the verb that is applied here is, is what begins this passage in verse 13. Be, be subject. Be subject. In other words, Peter says here in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. And then verse 16 adds, as free people. Be subject, be subject as free people. And then notice further, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but, and just simply, as slaves of God. So here's the, the basic thought, verses 13 to 16. Main idea. Be subject to every human institution as a free person who's a slave. Be subject as a freeman who's a slave to God. What is that? How does that work? You submit, you're free, and you're a slave. How do we fit this together? Well, when you become a Christian, friends, you become free in every sense of the word. You are first and foremost freed from your bondage to sin. When you are living in sin apart from Christ, when you are pursuing all of the corrupt desires of the flesh, when you are living like an atheist as if God does not exist, you are not living as a free person. You are living as one who is bound by the chains of sin. And that master seeks only to abuse and destroy you. Throughout your life, 
apart from Christ, you are a slave. In fact, Jesus says, he who sins is a slave to sin. And so when you come to Christ and through the gospel God gives you new life, you are in a very real sense of the word set free. Just as the Israelites were freed from the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt, you likewise are set free from the bondage of sin and death and now free to live in righteousness and holiness and from the heart pursue the will of God. So in one sense, you have a, a true spiritual freedom. But you also are free from the world. As John says in 1 John 5.19, lies in the power of the evil one. You are free from the fallen, corrupted, sinful systems and institutions, human creations of the world. You are very much so ultimately a citizen of heaven. You are here nothing more than a sojourner and stranger. You are a foreigner in a strange land. You are an ambassador to the kingdom of God. This is not your home. This is not what you are ultimately bound by. Which means that the world and all of its institutions is not your ultimate authority. Society is not your ultimate authority. What the culture deems to be good and what it deems to be evil is not what you deem to be good and evil. And neither is the state, or nor your boss, nor anyone else, nor anything else. None of them are your master. You are free. You are free from them and they are not your Lord. Now, especially in a very secularized world where many people treat the state as if it is in fact the ultimate authority over all things, that is a very shocking idea. And the notion even for the early Christians living under the Roman Empire where Caesar is the ultimate authority, that is a very shocking idea. It sounds almost rebellious. And indeed, as radical as that truth sounds, it could and it has led many to the conclusion that you therefore have no obligations to anyone except yourself and to God. That, of course, would be a false conclusion. Which is why Peter adds the next Two statements. First, you don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Your, your true freedom in Christ, your freedom from the world, is not to be used to pursue ungodliness and evil and sin. A lot of professing Christians do this. They say, you know, I'm free. God has set me free. He's forgiven me of my sins. He's, he's cleansed me of my sins. I have no condemnation before Him. He, he loves me just the way I am. And then they go on living again as if He doesn't exist. As if He does not have a law. As if He has not given them a word by which they are to conform to. They live as if their freedom is a freedom to sin without guilt. But again, that's not freedom. That is a return to bondage. Biblically, to habitually pursue the very thing that separates you from God and that kills your soul is itself bondage. So this is not a freedom here that Peter speaks of to become a slave to sin again, but it is a freedom to become a slave to God. This is what Peter ends verse 16 with. To be a slave to God 
is the truest freedom that there is. How can that be? How can being a slave make you free? How can being a slave to God have any sense of freedom tied to it? I thought freedom is just being able to serve myself and to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, and however I want to do it. Again, the answer is no. That is bondage. And the reason is because you, friends, and I, and we are creatures. We are creatures. Therefore, by definition, you are not the highest good. And your desires are not the highest good good, nor the highest authority. The highest good, the highest authority is the Creator. It is the one who made you. And so to pursue your own will as an end in itself is to pursue nothing more than idolatry. It's to become an idolatry. The way that God has made and designed us as His image bearers is that we would pursue His will and His glory as our ultimate end. And in pursuing His glory as our ultimate end, we would in that pursuit find our greatest joy. This is why the very first question, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? What is our greatest purpose? What has God made us for? And the answer that is given is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our joy is ultimately to be found in submitting ourselves to the will of God. So that's why all throughout the New Testament you find the apostles variously referring to themselves as slaves of God and doing so in a joyful manner as if it's a badge of honor for them. It is by becoming a slave to God and submitting ourselves to His Word and to His ways that we truly become free and are able to enjoy the fullness of that freedom. And as we see in this text, one aspect of His will for us, one way in which we enjoy the freedom of being disciples of Christ is by submitting ourselves as much as is possible to the authorities of the state. I think especially in our politically charged environment today, the natural impulse for a lot of people is to think first about when and how to resist. While there is certainly a place for that, which again we will consider next week, the most natural impulse For the Christian to be, how can I carry out the will of God by being submissive to the state? How can I obey the will of God by being a good citizen of the state? How can I be peaceable and respectable and honoring to those in authority? The Christian is forced into a position where he or she must resist. It ought to be incredibly surprising when that happens because our basic disposition is to be one of obedience. It ought to be the case that when Christians resist the overreach of the state or the righteousness of the state, it stands out because they are usually working in sync with the state. So friends, I would exhort you this morning with Peter to 
be a people who, first of all, live out their freedom as being slaves of God, as being servants of the state, so that unbelievers may see your good deeds and may ultimately glorify God on the day of visitation. That you would be a people who in humility and in service to the Gospel are working primarily to cultivate hearts and habits that aim to benefit the authorities that be. So that if and when the day comes when it is inevitable that you must resist, again, it stands out and bears even brighter a witness to the glory of Christ. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, it is very easy for our heart's disposition to want to cast off all restraint. And especially in our day when we can see various policies on local levels and on even higher federal levels, not only in our own nation, but even abroad, when we see things that we just don't like, policies that we do not believe to be best for the flourishing of society, even though they may not contradict the Word of God, our tendency is to rebel. And so, Lord, I pray that we would heed the commands of Christ in the Word of God through Peter, that we would be a people who are cultivating primarily a disposition of submission and servitude to the state so that our witness would stand out all the more. That we would not be a people who submit slavishly. That we would not be a people who obey despite what Your Word says. But that we would be a people who revere and fear God above all. And out of that fear of God, we submit ourselves to the authorities. And so, Lord, make us a good witness, we pray, in Jesus' name.